The first principles are scattered throughout the New Testament. And the first principles are the elementary principles of the gospel that serve as the foundation that we build upon. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1. And verse 1 says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles. Now, pause there for a moment and back up just a few verses to verse 12 of the previous chapter. What does he mean by the elementary principles? He says in verse 12, for the time has come that you ought to be teachers. You have need that someone teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. The elementary principles are those first principles. Now let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 6. Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again. Here's another phrase for the first principles. The foundation of, and then he mentions several of the principles that are involved, of repentance from dead works, of faith in God, of doctrines of baptism, laying on of hands, etc., etc., etc. Here's what I want you to see from chapter 6 in verse 1. The elementary principles, the first principles, are the foundation on which all things concerning Christianity is built. If those first principles are solid in our hearts and in our minds and in our faith, then that which we build upon it is going to be solid. If that's weak, then we have a weakness that's going to cause things indeed to crumble. Back to chapter 5, where we just were just a moment ago. We are in danger if we neglect or we forget the basics. In other words, we, we may get fascinated with some text that's, that's deep and difficult and maybe it's challenging to our thinking. We like that, maybe. Or we really want something all the time, maybe, that's telling us we, we need to be encouraged. That's great. But if we neglect the first principles then we indeed are in danger. Let's go back to chapter 5 in verse 12. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need someone teach you again the first principles. In other words, if you neglect them, you forget them. So that they who once knew them need to be taught again. They have forgotten all about the basics and the principles upon which all things were built. An older preacher, Irvin Lee, once advised me when I asked him, what piece of advice would you give to a young preacher? His advice was, remember that in school we teach first grade every year. I've never forgotten that. Remember, we teach first grade every year. So with that in mind, I want us to look at two lessons today that are first principle in their nature. Let's go back to some very basic principles that we know and appreciate, and yet we need to have a complete understanding. The Bible teaches that we're saved by grace, we're saved by faith, and we're saved by works. All of that is taught, and we're going to give evidence of that as we go further. There are misconceptions concerning grace and faith and works. There is a concept that says if we're saved by grace, then we cannot be saved by faith. And so there are those who latch on to the principle of we're saved by grace, and therefore that means we could not be saved by faith at all. So faith can't be involved if we're saved by grace. There are those who have a concept that if we're saved by grace, we cannot be saved by works. Grace and works are, are not compatible at all, they think. So if you believe in salvation by works, then it can't be by grace. And if you believe in salvation by grace, you can't believe in works. 
There are those who believe that if we're saved by faith, and any passage that mentions faith, that means there are no works that are involved. So this morning, let's talk about grace, faith, and works. How do these three subjects relate to one another? What does the Bible teach about being saved by grace, being saved by faith, and being saved by works? Let's start with this. Let's talk about being saved by grace. The Bible talks about grace. Let's learn some things about grace. So I encourage you, if you don't already have a Bible, perhaps there's one in the pew, we're going to be tracing from passage to passage to passage, establishing some fundamental principles. Let's start with this. Let's understand that we all probably already agree we are saved by the grace of God. So let's go to Romans chapter 3. Let's go to the book of Romans chapter 3. And notice it, verse 24, Romans 3 and 24. Verse 23 was the verse that said, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now jump over a couple of chapters to chapter 5 and verse 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered because of the offense, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now you stop and think about that for a moment. However much sin there is in the world, there is more grace than that. However much sin you have committed, God has more grace for you than that. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be saved by grace. We have eternal life by grace. While we're in the book of Romans, let's go one more chapter over to chapter 6 and in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. So because of grace, we have the freedom from sin. It's just establishing we're saved by the grace of God. Let's go to the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, we'll say more about His blood later, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. According to the riches of His grace. We have redemption through His blood, he says. All right? Now notice at verse 8, which He has made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now verse 9 he said, having made, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Now let's go to chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, and notice beginning at verse 7. That in ages to come he might make known the riches of his grace in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the riches of his grace is demonstrated in Christ. Now verse 8, we'll come to this time and again. Verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now we'll come back to verse 9 when we talk about works a little bit later. I want to establish from Titus chapter 2 something about grace. And notice it verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Now we'll get the rest of that verse a little bit later. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Now, we'll talk about what it does in a moment, but look at chapter 3, verse 7. Having been justified by His grace. 
Titus 3 is going to define grace for us a little bit later. We can come to that at a later time. Now, all I've learned so far is that we are saved by the grace of God. No one disagrees with that. So what I'm concluding from that is that any doctrine that says anything that's contradictory to being saved by the grace must be false. When somebody says, I'm, I'm saved in this manner, and that contradicts the idea of being saved by grace, it's false because the Bible teaches we're saved by the grace of God. Let's go a step further. Let's notice what grace did. Grace provided a sacrifice for us. Hebrews 2 and in verse 9, that he by the grace of God, speaking of Christ, by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So it was the grace of God that caused him to, to die for every man. John 3.16, you know well, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. But let's go further. I want you to notice that grace provide, provides a revelation. Grace provided a revelation. Let's notice in Ephesians chapter 3. The word grace is not used in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, but you will make the connection to grace in a moment. How that by revelation he made known to us the mystery, as I briefly written before, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by his Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets. In other words, that which was in the mind of God has been revealed by the Holy Spirit. And Paul said, it's now been written down and you can read and you can understand it. So God gave us a revelation. Now, how do I know that's by the grace of God? Now, let's go to Acts chapter 20. I want you to notice twice in Acts chapter 20, a phrase that the Apostle Paul uses as he talks to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he talks about the word or the gospel and he calls it the grace of God, of the word of his grace. Look at verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Now notice with me. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, that revelation that has been given in Ephesians 3 is called the gospel of the grace of God. Drop down to verse 32. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So someone said, I, I want to hear more about the grace of God. We need to hear about the grace of God. We need preaching about the grace of God. We need to give emphasis to the grace of God. I say amen. You see, when we give emphasis to the word of God, we're giving emphasis to the grace of God because that word is the word of his grace. But let's go a step further. Let's go to Titus chapter 2 again. I said we would come back to this. Go, go to Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. I want us to see that the grace of God teaches us how to live. We're saved by grace. It provided a sacrifice by which we could be forgiven. It provides a revelation, but grace teaches us how we ought to live. The grace of God, which brings salvation, has appeared unto all men. Now notice verse 12, teaching us. That grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. What does the grace of God teach us? It teaches us some things to deny and say no to. You can't do this. But then it tells you what you need to be doing. Like what? Like living righteous and soberly and godly. So any kind of admonition that says you cannot participate in this sin. 
You can't participate in this worldliness. It's part of the grace of God. And any admonition that says you need to be godly, you need to be righteous, you need to be more diligent, is part of the grace of God. The grace of God teaches us how to live. Now let's get a summary of what's involved in the grace of God. We're trying to come to an understanding we're saved by grace. So what would be a summary of the grace of God? Well, here's what's involved in the grace of God. The Father's plan from eternity. Before the beginning of time, God had a plan by which man would be saved. Let's notice this in Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 4. <clears throat> Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God made choices, God made a plan before the foundation, his eternal plan, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. God had an eternal plan before the foundation of the world. Now what did that plan include? John 3, 16, God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So the grace of God includes the Father's plan of our salvation. It furthermore includes the Son's death, the Son's execution of the plan. <clears throat> Notice in Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 9 that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. So when the Bible says we're saved by grace, we're saved by the Father's plan. We're saved by the Son's death. But the Spirit was involved. All three beings of the Godhead were involved. The Spirit was involved in the revelation. How that by, revela by the Spirit, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. That is, the Spirit revealed it to the apostles and prophets. But furthermore, it includes God's love and His mercy. Now, since we come back to Titus chapter 3, so let's go to Titus chapter 3. <clears throat> go to Titus chapter 3, and let's back up to verse 5, and then we'll get verse 7. Well, we're trying to come to an understanding, what's included in the grace of God? Well, verse 5, it said, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. You might underline that word mercy. We're saved by the mercy of God. Now drop down to verse 7. Verse 7 says, Having been justified by His grace. Notice chapter 3, verse 7. Having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now what's called the mercy of God is called now the grace of God. But let's back up to verse 3. I want you to notice something else. I want you to notice in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. In other words, we did not deserve to be saved. We were ungodly, but what happened? Look at now at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God, might underline kindness and love, and mercy at verse 5, and grace at verse 7, those are synonymous terms in this context. We did not deserve to be saved, but the kindness of God came to play. The love of God came to play. The mercy of God came to play, and the grace of God had, had, came to play. Look at verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, not by anything we deserved. Now I'm understanding what's involved in grace. It involves the Father's plan, the Son's death, the Spirit's revelation in God's love and mercy, and the shedding of His blood. Notice in chapter 26 and verse 28 of the book of Matthew, Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. He paid a price that we might be forgiven. 
So what's involved in the grace of God? All of these things that we just noticed and anything else that God may have done. Now let's shift our attention and talk about faith. What does the Bible say about faith? Well, first of all, let's establish that we are saved by faith. And so if the Bible says you're saved by grace and the Bible says you're saved by faith, those cannot be contradictory. So let's start in John chapter 5. Let's go to John chapter 5 and notice in verse 24. John chapter 5 and notice verse 24. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you that whoever hears my word and believes in me, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but is passed from death unto life. Jesus said you must believe. Before go looking at John 3.16, we've quoted it several times already. That God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him. But let's go to Romans chapter 5 and in verse 1. Therefore being justified by faith. Therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we're justified by the grace of God. Well, a familiar text to us all, Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm compounding verses because there may be one verse that rings a bell that another verse may not ring for you. Hebrews 11 and in verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to believe, uh, to please him, but he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the reward of those that diligently seek him. And so one that comes to God and pleases God must believe. Let's go to one other passage before we develop some thoughts about faith. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 5. Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 5. Verse 5 had said that by grace have you been saved. But now verse 8 says, for by grace have you been saved through faith. It connects grace and faith together. And so we're saved by grace and we're saved by faith. But the Bible teaches that we're saved by faith. But let's go a step further. Let us notice that grace can be and is conditional. Grace can be and is conditional. Some have the idea that faith and grace cannot work together because if something is by the grace of God, it cannot be conditioned upon some, some condition that God states. So let's go to the book of Joshua. Go to Joshua chapter 2 with me, if you will. Joshua chapter 6, and notice in verse 2, this is the taking of the city of Jericho. And in taking the city of Jericho, God said, I have, notice this word, I have given into thy hand Jericho. Jericho was a gift of God. God gave Jericho to the people. Were there any conditions to follow? Look at verse 3. You shall march around the city, all men of war. And you shall go around the city once, you shall do for six days. Then he goes on to further tell them that they are brought you around the city on, on the seven times and blow the trumpets and shout. In other words, there was action to take place. There were conditions set down that they might receive the city. But God said, I have given that to you. What we're trying to establish is that grace can be and is conditional. Let's go to Romans chapter 4 and in verse 16. Romans 4.16 said, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. So something can be of grace and of faith at the same time. Grace can be and is conditional. 
But let's go back to Hebrews 2 and in verse 9. He by the grace of God should taste death for every man. That is, Jesus by the grace of God died for us. But chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, speaking of that same Christ, that though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So that grace of chapter 2, verse 9, is conditioned upon obedience. Now let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2 one more time. In Ephesians chapter 2, and in verse 5, I learned, for by grace have you been saved. But at verse 8, for by grace have you been saved through faith. What am I learning? That grace is conditioned and faith is one of those conditions. Now I say one of those conditions because when we talk about being saved by faith, it's not by faith alone. How do I know that? There are many who take a text and they come across like Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith. And they conclude from that, that means faith alone. So how, why do you believe salvation by faith alone? Because Romans 5, 1 and a host of other texts like John three sixteen says believe or it says faith and that means faith alone. But that cannot mean faith alone even according to their own reasoning. But let's start with James 2 and in verse 24. Look at James chapter 2 and in verse 24. Be familiar with this text as you talk to your friends and neighbors. James 2 verse 24 says, You see how that, uh, then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only? One is justified by works and not by faith alone. The text specifically says it's not by faith alone. But even according to the own reasoning of those who believe in faith only, it cannot be faith alone or that would mean there's no repentance involved. And so when you ask someone, do you believe in faith only? Oh, sure, we believe in faith only. You mean no repentance? Oh, no, I think repentance has, is required. Well, then it's not faith alone. If one is saved by faith alone, there's no repentance involved. Repentance is not required. Many of those who believe in salvation by faith alone also believe, in, and I put in quotation, they believe in calling on the name of the Lord. And what they mean by that is praying to God for salvation, praying the sinner's prayer. That you offer to God this sinner's prayer of I'm a sinner and save me from my sins. That's not found in the scripture and that's not what's meant by calling on the name of the Lord, Joel 2 or Acts 2 or Acts 22 or Romans 10. Talking about obedience, but they think it has reference to praying to God for salvation. So they think I'm saved by faith alone if I go to the mourner's bench and I pray to God for salvation. So if one is saved by faith alone, there is no calling on the name of the Lord. But let's go to Romans chapter 10. Let's illustrate from two texts that sometimes the Bible uses a figure of speech that we call synecdoche. It sounds impressive, doesn't it? All that means is a part for the whole. That sometimes instead of mentioning several things that are included, God will only mention one of those standing for all of those. I'll give you a case in point. Two cases in point, in fact. Let's go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 <clears throat> And in verse 16, I said 13 to 16, but I just want to focus at verse 16 for the moment. Verse 16 says, but they have not all, here's your word, obeyed the gospel. Now, as Paul often does, he's going to justify his statement from some quotation from the Old Testament. So he quotes from Isaiah. And so what did Isaiah say? Isaiah didn't use the word obey. What Isaiah said is, Lord who hath believed our report. 
You might circle that word obeyed and the word believed because they are synonymous in this context. This again is where the Bible serves as its own best commentary. What do you mean by obeyed? I mean believed. What do you mean by believed? I mean obedience. So obedience and faith mean the same thing in this context. Sometimes the word faith stands for obedience, not just the mental acknowledging of Christ, but the obedience. Standing for all of the conditions that God has laid down. So let me give you a case in point in Acts chapter 11. Not with faith, but with repentance. Let's go to Acts chapter 11 and in verse 18. In the case of the conversion of Cornelius, when the news of this got to Jerusalem, they questioned Peter about that. They called him on the carpet. So he rehearsed the matter from the beginning and told him, here's what happened, told him about how the Holy Spirit fell on the household of Cornelius. Here's what their reaction was. Look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then, notice this, has God granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, what does that mean? Is that mean repentance is the only condition? You don't have to have faith, you just, just repent. You don't have to have faith, you don't have to believe in Christ at all. Just repent, just change your mind and you'll be saved. No, 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 no. No, no there's more to it. Faith is included. How do I know? Because the Bible mentions faith. But it didn't mention faith in Acts eleven eighteen, 18, though, did it? It just mentioned repentance. What does repentance stand for? It stands for all. Well, it, it deals with repentance, but it also stands for faith in any other condition that God has laid down. God has granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. I know they did more than that because Acts 10 shows that Cornelius was baptized. And the same thing is true with passages on faith. Now, what have I learned about salvation by faith? We're saved by faith. Grace can be conditioned, which means faith can be tied with grace. And it's not salvation by faith alone. Let's talk about works now. Grace, faith, and works. What does the Bible say about works? Quite often someone will say that I, I just don't believe we're saved by works at all. And someone else will say, I do believe we're saved by works. And can those be harmonized? Well, let's see. Let's start with the passages that say we're saved by works. What does the Bible say about being saved by works? Not all of these will use the term work, but let's see what it says. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 and in verse 40. On the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, as Peter is preaching to the 3,000, he says, be saved from this perverse generation. The King James says, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. You take some responsibility on yourself. There's something that you do. That's some work. Well, let's go to Acts chapter 10 now. We just mentioned the case of Cornelius, and as the gospel was preached to Cornelius, Peter said at verse 34, I perceive that God shows no partiality. God's no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he who fears God and works righteousness is accepted of him. Peter told this first Gentile convert that the one who fears God and works righteousness, God accepts. You're going to have to work righteousness in order to be saved. So we're saved by works. Let's go to another passage. Let's go to the book of Philippians chapter 2 and in verse 12. Philippians 2 and in verse 12, Paul is exhorting obedience, continual obedience on the part of these Christians. And he said, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
You work out your salvation. Somehow we're saved by works. Well, if that's not clear enough, let's go to James chapter 2 and in verse 24. We've been there already this morning. Verse 24, you see how that, by, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone? These passages affirm specifically we're saved by works. The Bible also says we're not saved by works. Let's see what those passages say. The Bible does say. So if somebody said, do you believe you're saved by works? I'd say yes. Do you believe we're not saved by works? Yes. Because the Bible affirms both. Let's look at Romans chapter 3. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and in verse 28. Romans chapter 3 verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds, King James says, works of the law. So you're saved without the works of the law. All right, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 9. We've quoted this passage several times already. For by grace are you saved through faith, verse 8 said. Not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's go one more time before we begin to harmonize those. This time let's go to Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So the Bible clearly says we're not saved by works, but it also says we are saved by works. Let us notice that there are different kinds of works. Sometimes people come to me and say, I'm talking to my friend or neighbor, and uh, we're getting confused on works. And he's citing passages that says you're not saved by works, but I, I don't know how to handle that. And I found a passage that says you are saved by works, and he's found one that says you're not saved by works. And how do you harmonize that? Here's how you harmonize that. The Bible mentions different kinds of works. For example, we won't read every one of these passages again. The Bible mentions works of man's righteousness, not by works of our own righteousness, Ephesians chapter 2. That's what we saw in Titus 3 and verse 5. Not by works of our own righteousness, but according to his mercy he saved us, Titus 3, 5. All right? So there's works of our own righteousness whereby we deserve. There's works of the law of Moses by the deeds of the law. He's talking about the law of Moses. So no one is saved by going back into the law of Moses and keeping that law. They cannot be saved in that fashion. Here's another kind of work. There's a work of faith. We haven't looked at that passage yet. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Quickly turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and in verse 3. He said, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Talking about the church at Thessalonica. They did well. They were growing. They were progressing. It's called a work of faith. There are good works, Titus 2.14. John 6. If you don't get another passage, get this one down in your mind. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. There is a work of God. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? There's a work that's called a work of God. There's works of our own righteousness, but this is the work of God. Look at verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe. You might underline believe. Faith is a work of God. We'll say more about that here in just a second. Acts chapter 10, verse 35, there's works of God's righteousness. So when someone says, you know what, do you believe we're saved by works? Yes. But I thought the Bible says we're not saved by works. Yes. 
You see, it matters about the different kinds of works. We're not saved by works of the law. We're not saved by works of man righteousness. We're not saved by dead works. That is the kind of works that produce spiritual death. That's sin. That's another expression for sin. Talking about God separating us from dead works. Any sin is a dead work. And so we're not saved by dead works. We're not saved by works of our own righteousness, the works of the law. We are saved by the works of God. We are saved by works of God's righteousness. We are saved by good works. We're saved by works of faith. There's a way to harmonize those two concepts. But let's go again. Let's try to harmonize Romans chapter 4 and James chapter 2. Why don't we need to try to harmonize those? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Romans 4 makes the point we're saved by faith and not by works. Let's get a sampling of this. We, the several verses make this point. Um, For if Abraham, verse 2, were justified by works, he has something to boast, but not before God. Verse 4 says, not to him who works are the wages counted as grace, but debt. So one is saved by faith, like Abraham, and not by works. James 2 says you're saved by works and not by faith alone. And some think there's a contradiction between those texts. One says you're saved by faith and not by works, and another one says you're saved by works and not faith only. Some have tried to harmonize that and have argued that Romans 4 is addressing the alien sinner, James 2 is addressing the Christian, and so that's what he's talking about here. That's how you harmonize that, they think. Well, that's not exactly right. Let's see if we can harmonize them in a better fashion. Romans 4, let's go back to Romans 4. Romans 4, the context is talking about being justified by faith. He started that concept in chapter 3, continues it into chapter 5. So those three chapters as he's dealing with being justified by faith, separate and apart from the deeds of the law. So the context is saying that Abraham's talking about Abram there. So he's not merely talking about an alien. Abram was already a child of God. Here's this point that he's emphasizing. That one is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Rather than go back and keep the deeds of the law, one is justified by faith in Christ. That's the point of Romans chapter 4. What's James chapter 2 about? The context is dealing with a different context. He's not talking about contrasting the works of the law of Moses. He's talking about faith and works. One who says he has faith, but he doesn't have anything to show for his faith. He's not active in his faith. That's the context of James 2. It is not merely talking about a Christian because Rahab, verse 25, is mentioned in the context. Just like we have Abraham over here. What's the point? Being justified by an obedient faith. They're talking about two different things. One is showing you're saved by faith in Christ, not by the law. The other text is showing you're saved by obedient faith. And there has to be works and obedience to that faith. Now let's quickly run through some examples. And the lesson will be yours. Let's try to harmonize grace and faith and works. And show in a number of cases in the Old Testament and New Testament for that matter, where there was grace involved, there was faith, and there were works that were involved. Let's take the case of Noah. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6 and in verse 
8. Genesis 6 and in verse 8. In the case of Noah being transported from the old world to the new world by the flood and by the ark, was the grace of God involved? Chapter 6 says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But let's go this time to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and notice verse 7. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. Was grace involved? Yes, it was. Was faith involved? Chapter 11, verse 7 says it was. Were there any works involved? He prepared an ark, didn't he? So there's grace, there's faith, and there's works, and they all harmonize. Let's take another example. In Genesis chapter 12, without reading verses 1 to 3, God told Abraham to leave the country, and I'm going to send you to a country that I will show you. It's obviously by the grace of God, I'm going to give you this land. Well, while we're in Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 8 and 9. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he would receive as an inheritance. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise. What am I learning from that? Was it by grace? Genesis 12 says it was. Was it by faith? Hebrews 11 says it was. Were there any works involved? The King James says in verse 9 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, he sojourned, he traveled, he went to the place. There's grace, there's faith, and there's works. Here's another example. Israel, passing through out of Egypt into the wilderness and on in making their way to the promised land. Exodus chapter 4 shows it, Exodus 14 shows it was by the grace of God that God's grace brought them out of the land of Egypt. But I want you to notice in Hebrews chapter 11 and drop down to verse 29 that by faith they passed through the Red Sea. Was there any works? They passed through the Red Sea. They didn't just stand on the one side and God dragged them through. Nothing that they had to do, but they passed through the Red Sea. Here's another example. We've already given the case of Joshua. That God said, I have given into thy hand Jericho. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down. After they were encircled for seven days. Means they walked around for seven days. What about the case of Naaman? Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 5. Jump over to 2 Kings quickly to chapter 5, the case of Naaman the leper. And I want you to notice at verse 10 that God sent a messenger, Elisha, to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you shall be clean. That was by the grace of God. I'm going to cleanse you of your leprosy. But verse 14 shows he had to dip seven times. He acted upon that and he went and dipped seven times. Were there works? He dipped seven times. Was there grace? Yes. Faith? Yes. Were there works? There was. Well, what about us today? Can grace, faith, and works harmonize? Ephesians 2 says, for by grace have you been saved. Verse 8 and 9 said, for by grace have you been saved through faith. Are there works involved? Hebrews chapter 5 says he's being a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. There's obedience, there's works involved. That's a very simple, basic, fundamental, first principle study. Grace, faith, and works. And how do they work together? How do they harmonize? How do they work together? Can we be saved by faith, by grace, and by works? Can we affirm all three? The Bible does affirm all three. Grace, faith, and works. May that help us.
to get the fundamentals, the foundation that we might comprehend and understand and have a solid foundation on which we build our faith. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come this morning believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come? All together we stand and while we sing.